is in the general war. Let's pray. Our Father, some time ago we preached through Second Timothy. And if you recall, we got to the place where we talked about the events of our time, our age, and the specifics of chapter 3, which starts out with these words. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, etc., etc. And it just goes on. Um, Perilous times shall come. Stressful, difficult, um, times that are grievous. And although I feel old at times, in reality, I haven't lived that long, yet I think I can honestly say that these are perilous times. You know, I can study history, and I recognize that there are tragic times in the past, but I truly believe that these are. These are days when the evidence seems to be overwhelming, with so many happenings and things taking place that shock the system. We just really don't have any idea. What's going on? What were they thinking? How could they have done this? It's so wrong. I mean, for us as, as Christians, we look at it and say, wow, it just boggles the mind. Institutions that were once hallmarks of stability have fallen off their foundations. I think you'd agree that there were always uh, some essentials in society. And I think of five institutions that in general, had taught morality in society to keep things um, on an even keel. Uh, Things that were uh, recognized as not being perfect, but they were institutions, I believe, given by God for the responsibility and the oversight of individuals and families and and such that were there. Um, Schools. The law, the media, the church, and the family are the five I'm thinking of. And yet what today, the school system has effectively been neutralized as a moral teacher. It has been squelched. In fact, the public school system is probably one of the greatest enemies to morality in the country. Um, The picture that they draw in far too many locations, you enter a school through a metal detector or armed guards patrol hallways. You find classrooms that are a place where you can learn about or be supported if your gender isn't necessarily the one that you were told by the doctors when you were born. The fight that is ongoing seems to be one to be light years away from our time. I mean, what's taking place today seems to be so distant from the classroom of today. Do you remember prayer and Bible reading in school? And you've been out for over 60 years, you know, 60 years ago, you know, but I remember that. I remember the loudspeaker in elementary school and they would have the Lord's Prayer and, and it was a public school, you know. And yes, there are still many dedicated teachers serving in school districts that are doing their best under the circumstances. And I know if I say that previously, you know, well, I'm, you know, yeah, I recognize that. But the system is terribly flawed. The system is dangerously flawed. 
and the morality that they once held to, for the most part, has been neutralized. The second organization or foundation is the law. Well, too often, it has now been nullified as a moral teacher. Think about the most hideous, heinous acts that are being done today that are legal. That are legal. They are protected by the law, and I'm sure you can name them. And so the law's traditional role as a guide and as a protector in society has been sabotaged by people who believe that those things that are legalized are moral. Those things that are legalized are moral. If the law permits gay marriage, then it must be moral, because the law says it is. It must be right for society. It must be moral. Fifty years of living under the protection of the law, a generation growing up believing in the morality of abortions. You know, a whole generation coming to hold to such. The law has basically been nullified. The third, and probably not necessarily one that you would think of very much, is the media. It did perform much good. In history, there are always poor examples of it, but for the most part, I believe it had performed much good. But it, too, has not only been neutralized, it has become one of the most powerful weapons in the neoliberal society to push against Christianity to where it is the the leading institution to mock and malign Christians. All kinds of moral distortions are portrayed in Hollywood or other forms of media as being the standard for families. This is the way families normally live in America. You may watch television or may not, or may watch movies or may not, but if you do, can you name a TV family that best portrays your family? They are there, and I've laughed at them. So this humorous, you know, how they live, you know, these examples and situations. And, and yet, if somebody comes from outer space, you know, and they're, they're still out there, you know, and they're looking down, he says, let's examine these, these Americans and see what their families are like, and let's pull up some of these beams that are coming up to us, you know. And they're watching movies, and they're watching TV, and he said, man, this is a, a sick bunch of people, you know. Because the media has portrayed such as the mainstream of direction. And then fourth, as a former moral teacher, has been the church, which has generally been neutralized because so many of its number have voluntarily given up the roles as the leader in morality, in teaching, in guiding. Again, the very effective neoliberalism of the past century has infiltrated almost every mainline denomination. They've thrown in the towel. They have come around and turned what had been the standard of living to be spiritual eunuchs, purposely worthless. Many of those churches have become defenders of the very perversions that the Bible holds to be as a standard. No specifics needed, but go to a mainline denomination and watch and listen and read what they believe. And we say, that isn't what the Bible says. Actually, God's word says, I'm against it. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, brethren. 
God's testimony and righteous living and morality has been held up in many churches around the world. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ shall not fail. You know, it is powerful. But if you want to count numbers, if you want to look at statistics of that which is supposed to have been, I'm saying across the board more than once that as a moral teacher, the church in general has failed. Lastly, there's the family. Since the schools and the law, uh, since the church and since media have, in essence, stepped aside and failed as the moral teacher, gone to the sidelines, and many of them underlining the workings of morality, the only remaining entity of hope is the family. To hold a standard in such a crazy, insane world. With all the other players out of the game, the family now must bear the brunt of Satan's attack. It doesn't mean that he's not active in other areas, but the family seems to be, most recently, under the attack of Satan. I will not waste my time identifying the myriads of assaults that have been laid against the family today. And I mean probably today more than every, any other day actually give a definition of a family. What is a family? You know, as we grew up, it was very logical, with some exceptions. Easy to define a family. Today, you could get into an awful argument about what a family is. Brethren, the family is the keystone of society. And as we all know, as the family goes, so does the nation. It's not a very encouraging picture, is it? spend the week in reading over this and, and picking up on different articles and so forth, and obviously you can find a myriad of stuff on the Internet, and you don't really have to go there. You can just look around to see it. But it burdens my heart terribly. It's, it's a weight, you know. It is something that could just crush your spirit and say, why, Lord, these things to be? And although its occurrence of these things shouldn't be a surprise to me, this know also in the, in the last days perilous times shall come. You know, it doesn't make it any better, you know. I know they should be. You know, we always talk about Jesus can return at any moment, and he can. I think all of the pieces are in place. And yet, with that return, we recognize the situation in the land in which we live. It still wears on me, and I trust it wears on you also. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> you know, you put it in the context, you know. Even what is a mother? Define that. Define such a relationship. Define the situation. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 10. James 4, beginning in verse 7, he writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, 
and he shall lift you up. Not necessarily in the context of the exact workings of what James is putting in here, but these are are six principles that are laid at the root of discouragement. These are six principles that are laid at the root of the situation that we find ourselves in today. And the honest truth to shake off discouragement and really be overcomers in the world in which we live, we have to understand what James is saying. Obviously, he had a, he had, he had a purpose of situations that were occurring in the church, and, and you can go over our past messages on, on these in chapter 2 and 3 all the way through, but I think the general principle is the same. These first century believers were living in a time of enormous vitality. The, 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 the resurrection of Christ was just a stone's throw away. You know, Many were still alive who, who knew the Lord, who had seen these very things. And yet they were surrounded, like us, with a vast paganism and even an anti-Christian mission field, like us. And I think that's where, where it coincides with our wake. The situation that found of first century believers and the time that we live are very much bound together. Most of these didn't have the luxury of a preacher moving them onto greener pastures. So how were they to live as overcomers? They weren't organized churches with congregations and sitting in the luxury of a of a house of the Lord and have the ability to uh, lock it up and go to other places, and they didn't have that. How were they and how are we to become overcomers in our world? The first one he presents to us out of verse 7, and again, remember, James didn't write in verse. He didn't write in, in chapters. Uh, so these, although they may be connected by verse and they fit very well, um, they are, in essence, separate sections. He says, submit yourselves to God. Not hard to understand, and yet it is the cornerstone of truth. Be submissive to God. Be submissive to God because you are a servant and you are never to forget that. No matter what station in life you find yourself in, no matter where along your life's trail you will be, whether here on earth or up in heaven, you are a servant and you always will be a servant. We will serve God forever, irrespective of whatever has taken place. And I believe that this is one of the hardest lessons to learn in life. James puts it as number one. Luke gives us an interesting commentary on the early life of Jesus. If you remember the one feast that Jesus and his parents and some of the others from town had gone to Jerusalem, spent a little time there, you know, and the feast was finished, and Mary and Joseph are on their way back. He says, hey, who has the kids? Where is he? We left him behind. We we knew a family up in, in New York. They lived up in, outside New York City, but some distance away. They had 11 kids, enough for a baseball team. And he says, it wasn't unusual for us to leave one of them behind, you know. And he says, one day, he says, we got the call from the police. And he says, is this your son? 
they had all gone in their big station wagon, crammed in and gone to the grocery store, and they thought they counted noses, <laughs> and they came back, and, and, and the, the youngest one was still at the grocery store. What I found interesting is after they had finished, the words of Jesus were, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. To whom? His imperfect parents. This is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the, 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 the soon coming king. He was subject to imperfect parents. He showed submission throughout his life. This is the first lesson that I think we really have to learn. We don't have our own agendas. We like to think we do. We like to think we plan out our week or our month or our year ahead, starting in January 1st, and say, these are the goals that we want to do. These are the things that I have to accomplish. But our own agendas pale in comparison to what our Lord wants us to do. A servant has one great task, and that is discovering what his master wants, and then do it. What his master wants, and then do it. And how do we know? Well, he's made it very clear. He's laid it out in his word, with no uncertain terms, what we, as his children, are to do. That relationship that we are to have for him, and it is up to us to make change in order to have that done. We shouldn't be confused about this because God is secretly at work transforming us into the image of his son. That's his plan. He says, this is who you are. This is who I want you to be like. And you are to be submissive to me as we make these changes. Submissive, submit to me. May this be understood within our hearts. We have been given a new nature. And now we bring every part of our lives under the control of God. As Paul says, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Perfecting, forming, reshaping holiness. Be holy as I'm holy. Breaking away from what I was in the world and to be more like Jesus. That's the picture. Let me remind you that we are going to be changed. We are going to be changed. We are going to be changed. And it won't be easy. At times it will be rather painful. I think that's why many profession Christians look around for a church that suits them, a church that reaffirms their prejudices and that they can go on life with a comfortableness about saying, oh, I don't have to make any changes. This is a church that just fits quite nicely. Back in the 1980s, there was an advertising campaign by the American Unitarian Church. They said, now I have found a church that suits me. I don't have to make anything change. It fits me quite nicely. But brethren, the true Christian had never be satisfied with that. The true Christian is to be looking for a church which suits God, which God has ordained, which he has set up, and he will make the changes to the Lord. You know the words of Paul's admonition in 2 Timothy 3.16. He talks about the profiting of four areas of life that we are to be found in as we are submissive to him. For example, he says, change is found in the matter of doctrine. He says, teach me. Teach me, Lord. I don't want to remain in the kindergarten program all my life. 
spiritually. I don't want to be just there. I want to grow in under the submission of God. The word of God brings us to such an understanding. Secondly, he mentions the usefulness of reproof. The Christian says, point out my disobedience and rebuke me. I know we'll be living a minute longer doing something that the Lord hates. If this is an offense to him, God, then rebuke me and bring me to a place of change in my life that I might be closer to you, more submissive. The third one in Paul's writing, he says, is correction. Correct me, begs the servant. If there are things that are inconsistent with what the Savior loves, with what the Savior hates, then may those changes be accomplished. May they be corrected. And then the last one he talks about is instruction in righteousness. Lord, would you train me? This is the master being heard by the servant. And he says, I hunger and thirst for righteousness and that God may train me to be like that. So the Christian life is one found of submission to the will of God through the scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit. My understanding of not what I think it says, but what it does say and how it has brought me to a place of a better understanding with him. But it's also one of submission to God as he deals with us in his providence. His providence. We say, well, God understands all stuff and he orchestrates all events and all situations in life. What I mean by this is sometimes God sends a host of trials in our life. Trials and tribulations, as we saw in the very beginning of this book. There is a time in the life of the Apostle Paul when he was pressed hard and persecuted, when he was sought after his very life, and he barely escaped in situations struck down. And all that he did to show to his loving father was submit to him. The providential hand of God saw that it was profitable in Paul's life for all of these things to take place. And what did he do? Resist him? No. He says, God, this is your will. I learn and I am submissive to that. We are at times racked with questions about our world or our country. Why is the Lord allowing this? Why now? What's going to happen this year, next year, the next 10 years, if, if Jesus tarries? What about my illness, this financial loss? What about these particular conflicts? You know, God's providence, and it kind of issues into my submissiveness to him, is he making a mistake? Do I understand? Why me? Will we say with the apostle, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Wow. Do I understand what God does? How could I? Hindsight often gives us great benefit. We look back and say, Wow, now I understand. Whoa, oh, it's so clear. That's why that occurred. That's why those things... And sometimes we don't even see it. But his providential care was made perfect in each of us through Christ. Brethren, our submission to God is not dependent upon having all of our question answers, but on the fact that he is Almighty God. 
I tacked that up. Now I see. And we have no right to have any explanation for his providential workings. We must submit. So James begins with this, understanding the infancy of this church, that they're undergoing all types of things, conflicts, and we've seen those things in the past. But he says the first principle of victory, first principle over discouragement, first principle of becoming an overcomer in the world in which you live is my submission to God. The second one, and again, it's found in verse 7, but again, it is a separate picture that's being drawn. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I've wondered, could it be that the devil is making me feel wearied, burdened? And he's making me feel wore down, overly concerned about the things that are taking place in my country, in the world around us? Could the source of my soul's restlessness be him? I don't necessarily mean him. We're small potatoes when it comes to consider all things, but his de- demonic world. Could our excuses for our lack of taste for spiritual things our dissatisfaction with the congregation of God's people, our detachment from Christian work, our prayerlessness, our lack of study of the scriptures, could that not be due to not the matter of the preacher or not the matter of the individuals of the congregation, but it could be a matter of my poor spiritual health and the demons' schemes? Paul says they are the wiles of the devil. All types, all avenues, you know, all areas of life. We can't forget the apostle's words in a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he says, stand against the wiles, the, the craftiness, the sneakiness, the, the, the various attacks of those. Stand against them. And then he proceeds to give us this all-inclusive reason why we are to do it. What's the benefit for us? Because for we wrestle, right there he's showing the fact that there is a spiritual wrestling going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What does that mean? Not wrestling against individuals. We may focus our attention on people, but I'm not wrestling against them. Our wrestling is against the powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Can't see them, you know. One of those horror movies. They here, put these glasses on. You'll see. You can see all of the. It doesn't work like that. Knowing that they are there, the spiritual actions. The devil is called Apollyon, the angel of the bottomless pit, the god of this world. Look at the past hundred years. Look at the events that have taken place. Look at the horde, especially even more recently, even knock it down 50 years, you know. Look at the way things are taking place in, in the lives of, of countries. You, know? you don't even have to fight a war. You can just you know, remotely control things. You can just do this and you can do that. You, why would people do stuff like that? How wicked, how overwhelming. And brethren, I think we could be crushed by the atrocities and the cruelties that mark this age were it not for the armor of God that we put on. We would have no way to stand against it. And there are 
gazillions of people around this world that are simply crushed because of the very things that we say, I have the armor of God to put on, to be standing against such. This is a warfare that the Apostle Paul knew all about and he talked about. Remember Jesus when he came to Peter? And he says, Satan has you. He's got a hold of you. He's going to sift you like wheat. And what did Peter do? You know, oh, Peter didn't think much of it all. He was to watch and pray in order to survive. But Peter ignored Jesus' warning, and he fell down. He ignored it. He didn't watch. He didn't pray. He didn't prepare. He didn't stand against the wiles of the devil. I think I can confidently say that the devil is coming for you. You can guarantee it. He blinds the eyes of the unbelievers. He has no concern for them because they are his. In darkness, they stumble around and they do as they please. So he turns his attention to believers. You can guarantee one thing. Satan will come to trouble you as he's done before. You don't reach a stage in your life and say all of a sudden, well, I got past that. No more troubles for me. You know, our own memory can take us back to those situations. You know, he'll be there. So what are we to do? What does James say? Resist. Resist the devil. It's a mindset, isn't it? You know, we're not going to go around and put little crucifixes on us and say, ah, hang garlic, uh, you know, cloves about us, keep the devil away from you, stuff like that. It's a mindset. That's where the attack is. Let me ask you, how much time is given in the New Testament about Satan? Be honest, very little. There are some key passages that are pointed up, and, and they are in specific times. You get to Revelation or other areas that folks, but not really very much, all things considered. You can resist him by speaking much of our Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul says, for me to live as Christ, for me to live as Christ, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. How is a man best be prepared to resist the temptation to leave his wife? He fills his mind with her. He loves her even as Christ loved the church. He would lay down his life for her. So we resist the devil by spending much time with our Savior, by loving him more than we ever have done before, and loving his kingdom. He is our first love. There was a Bible school, Bible college teacher had given his students a test to write down on the paper the subject of Jesus Christ and the devil. That was all of the words that the teacher gave him. One student came and he wrote about the Lord Jesus Christ and finally on his last sentence he says, I have no time for the devil. That was his solution. That was the picture that he understood. The solution is much time for Jesus. Think about the familiar words of the hymn written by John Bode. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. In that hymn, he cries out, Oh, let me feel thee near me. The world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near around me and within, but Jesus, draw me nearer 
and shield my soul from sin. How powerful of an example it was for him. The, the, the allurements, the temptations, the wiles of the attack are everywhere. But he says, I can't do anything about it. But Jesus, be thou near me. You see, the promise is added to this command. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The Bible tells us that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Through Christ. Through Christ. The next Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. How do we overcome the world? The third counsel is come near to God. Come near to God. But someone would say, but God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, as a theologian will say. He is everywhere. So how do I draw near to him? I think the distance that we walk with him on a day-to-day basis is kind of the key there. If I'm lagging behind my Lord, or if I'm running ahead of him, if I don't necessarily have that fellowship and walk with him, as those who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, then that means that I am ignoring him on a day-to-day basis, and he won't be close to me. You think about Jesus' own words, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. We often talk about that or use that verse when we have a meeting together. and We say, when Jesus is with us, two or three are gathered together, he's in the midst. But what does the verse tell us? Well, first of all, it says, I can go to fellowship with true people of God, and he'll be there. Draw nigh to God, draw near to him. I can do that as I come to be with God's people. We have times of, of distance and fellowship, but we have to be away from vacations or, or work or whatever. You know, um, my son's on his way back with the family from Alabama. They had a wedding to go to and, and not able to be at church. And I know it's going to be difficult, you know. And he says, we surely wish it, but we just got to be able to get back home. And we've been away at times, one reason or another. But how sweet it is to recognize that God's presence is in his house as we gather together for fellowship together, as we listen to his word being preached, there you will find him. Not speaking of any particular preacher or whatever, there are avenues abounding on the internet, on the radio, of godly men behind the pulpit presenting the word of God, and you've got to just sit and say, wow, I'm drawing near to God through that passage, through that verse, through that example. And I found there are times when, you know, start Monday morning and I'll read something and I'll hear something during the week and it's added, you know, by God's providence. It's the same topic or the same picture. And it just keeps adding and adding and adding throughout the week. That's the Spirit of God working around saying, I'm drawing near to him. I'm drawing near to him. I think also of entering into a quiet room, closing the door, kneeling before him, and praying in the name of Jesus, you'll find him. That door being closed. I had a dear friend, he's down in in, uh, Greenville, South Carolina. We were in seminary together, and he got up and gave a testimony one time in seminary, and he says, you know, I read that verse, and I thought I had to literally be in my closet room. His study, because of the house that he lived in, was under the stairs, uh, going upstairs. And it was, <laughs> it was just a little, 
you have the little room in the back here, you know, where the things are kept. That was like his thing. And he says, I found it extremely hard to get on in there. He says, that's not what he was talking about, but I have to get away. I have to distance myself from what I can in order that I can say, Lord, hear my words. This is my prayer. And sometimes it's physical. Uh, Sometimes we just get off our regular routines and spend that time with him. I think that's drawing near to him. Also, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God with all your might, and you'll be drawing near to him. This is how to come near to God. Whatever the purpose is for my task of the day, on the, on the work site, uh, taking vacation, uh, just getting up and doing stuff in the house or around the yard, what am I doing it for? What's the purpose in it? Am I doing it to glorify God? Paul says, well, whatsoever you do, eat or drink or whatever, do it to the glory of God. You know, and we don't really, I don't really think about that, you know, as I'm downing the food or as I'm doing whatever, working in the car and banging my knuckles on underneath, you know. No, I'm doing it for God's glory, and it's not for me. I'm drawing near to him. Lifting up your heart in, in faith to him as you walk, as you drive, as you fly, as you lie in the hospital bed in great weakness and you call upon the name of Jesus. I've got a picture of Judith today, and she, uh, Peter had a tablet with her, and, and, and uh, he says it was a psalm or a Proverbs, and she was reading it, and, and she was like this, and Peter went to take it away from her, and, and she just pulled it back. You know, it was like, no, I want, to, I want to read it. She wanted to be drawn close to the Lord, pulled in through his word and the time that we spend together with him in faith. And then when temptations are strong and pull of the world is powerful, come near to God. Drawing near to him, all types of avenues, but I have to be cognizant of what this verse is saying. Do it. Make him the attention of your heart, your focus, your feet, your hands, your mind, your your direction of the purpose that is in there. Now, what's the promise that's attached to this command? Draw near to God and what? He draws near to you. He draws near to you. I often wondered how often James and family went to Jerusalem and visited the temple. You know, huge, beautiful edifice. And how often maybe they walked by and they stood outside as close as they could get without going in and said, within those walls is, is, is Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, you know. The responsibility for these men to to be close to God and draw near to him. How often did they walk by and they stood there, but those men never came out and talked with them. (laughs) Never came out and met with them. You know, never had. How many how many of you have driven down to DC and walked around by the White House? Done that, you know? Not a far trip. You know, and you get out and you can get within so many feet, it's it's fairly close. As long as there's no protest and no other actions are going on, you know, we can get fairly close and you say, I know the president's there. I know there's, there's, there, I know he's right in there. Maybe even, you know, some purposeful indication that he's there. But he never comes out and talks to you, does he? Never comes out and visits. But when we draw near to God, he comes to us. 
no matter where I am, no matter what the situation is. He upholds us, sustains us in everything. He upholds the Milky Way and a million galaxies like it. He is the God of the angelic hosts. He satisfies every desire of every living thing. He attends to the voices of the prayers of those who ascend by the thousands from all over this world. But when we draw near to him in Jesus' name, he attends to us as if we were the only person around. Think of that. Personal attention to you and I. Because we are his, and I want to draw near to him. And I'll just wait, I've got some other issues to deal with over here in the Middle East, some problems over here in Ukraine, you know, I've got to take care of this. I'll be with you. <laughs> it's never like that. It's never like that. He gives himself purposely, wholly unto us. His eyes are upon us. His ears are attentive. His mind is conscious of what our needs truly are and the best way to meet those needs. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How joyous and how precious that is. And as I think of the situation of our country, as I think of the situation of the family, of, of the confusion that exists in the members of the family and all that is being weighed upon the church and so forth, it's bothersome. But what do I do? I just have to come and I have to take it to him. Number four, we'll just dig into this a little bit because there are many more here and we're not going to have time for them all. The fourth is what James gives us. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I read this and I ask myself, aren't Christians washed, by the way, you know? Aren't we washed? Isn't that part of what it has taken place? Washed by the blood of the Lamb? Cleansed from every stain and sin? I know a fount where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. That's the attachment that we have with him. This is the place where the true Christian life begins washed and cleansed, out of that we are justified by God, sanctified by his spirit, adopted into his family. And that status is just not for the favored Christian. Oh, they're special people. These are especially highly gifted people. No, it's for every single one. The, the, the plain, old, mediocre Christians like us. We have such a glorious relationship. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Yet in truth, every Christian does sin. And although we have been washed by the blood, justified in his sight, brought into his presence with the confidence of all of our failures, the devil comes along and says, you really think that he believes in you in such a way? Look what you've done. Look how you've acted. Look at, look, look, look at this. Look at these words that you've said and the actions that you've taken. You're an awful failure. But brethren, we must never give up, because God will pick us up again. James is saying here, what he teaches us to wash our hands and purify our hearts. 
It is dealing with the particular sins of our every single day. Who amongst us has ever thought that we had the opportunity to live a sinless moment in life? You know, My whole attention is to honor God, and yet even as we sit here listening to this wonderful message perfectly presented, thank you for that chuckle, putting me in my place, you know. How often did my mind not focus on the Lord? How often did my heart not give its whole heart attention unto him? And we go through the whole day like that, and it just adds up. It just adds up, and it adds up. So who am I that I don't begin my day and say, thank you, Father, for what you've done in cleansing me and bringing me into your ch- as your child into your presence And I'm going to enter this day to be tempted to sin. Forgive me. And throughout the day, for the situations that occurred, when I've unjustly blown my stack, and I won't talk about Mother's Day, the things that I could have said or might have said to my sweetheart, you know? Forgive me, sweetheart. You know? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? All along, and there has to be a hard understanding that he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. There has to be a cleaning, constantly. And it's not a shame. It's not a fault. Just pause and say, Lord, I'm sorry for what I said. Sorry for what I did. Double-minded. I can't ride both sides of the fence. I have to have that heart understanding. James recognizes that a part of us has been defiled by sin and it needs to be washed again and again and again. Every day we receive the cleansing from Jesus' name. Don't stop. Don't stop. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Then wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're going to pick up on this part later on, along with the rest of them. If I overload you, you're going to miss the benefit of what these pieces are. Uh, I think it's, it's a good enough part to start with. Uh, understanding these initial um, four points, uh, three and a half points that James has given us. If we can make application of that, we'll come a long way. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful as we, um, again, consider your word Uh, that we recognize the word is in a context of the world in which we live. It was written for those uh, back in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, for those initial uh, churches and and gatherings together and initial believers. And even as James wrote them, I don't know if he could ever realize the profit that it would be for us even today in 2023, right here in this place. Yet it is, because... The word is given to us. Thank you for the leading of your spirit. May, Father, we frequent these passages and examine our hearts again and again that we might be more perfected servants for the master's use. Keep us, Father, humble. Keep us in a heart of of servitude and gratitude. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.